All right, guys. I'm excited to be opening up the book of Ecclesiastes with you again. So we were in the book of Ecclesiastes for a number of weeks. We took about a month off from looking at this book, and now we're going to be back in it. So I read an article this week that explained that as a country right now, we are in the midst of four separate crises. So there is a mental health crisis going on in our country. There is a global pandemic going on throughout the world, which is affecting our city and our country. There is a crisis of racial injustice, which has boiled to the surface so that all of us can see that. And there is also a looming and present economic crisis going on. And what the book of Ecclesiastes would have us do is go up into the mountains of God's amazing grace and love to see him for who he is and to breathe that fresh air so that we can have a new perspective on what is going on in our world. And so I kind of want to zoom out and look at the book of Ecclesiastes and to see kind of the big picture of what it's about. So the book of Ecclesiastes ends this way in chapter 12, verse 13, as Solomon's looking back at what he has written. It says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So he exhorts us to fear God. And I know that there can be a lot of confusion when the Bible tells us to fear God. Does that mean that we're supposed to be afraid of him? Let's take a little bit of time and unpack what it looks like to fear God. So what Solomon is saying is that life is an unpredictable, sad, tiring place that it's not a place that we can rest our hopes and dreams. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he's been saying that life is meaningless apart from this fear of God. And Solomon's saying this as a tremendously successful person, a person that has tasted all of the pleasures and gifts that this life has to offer. And he's saying it still has not satisfied me. And the reason for that is because although the world is not as bad as it could be, the world is a tremendously broken place. And the story of the Bible is that the world is a broken place because the world was meant to be a God-inhabited place. But what happened at the Garden of Eden is when Adam and Eve sinned, Their relationship with God was broken, which means that the foundational problem with the world at every level, personal, societal, structural, from the perspective of the Bible, the problem with the world is first of all, and foundationally, a vertical problem. Our relationship with God has been fundamentally and foundationally broken. And so God's diagnosis for the problems 
of the world is that people no longer fear God. People are in awe of a million other things, good and bad. The attention of people goes to anyone and anything besides God. And as a result, our hearts sink down into depression. We get overwhelmed and exhausted by the world when things are bad. But if, if we look back, even when things are good. And so what Solomon is inviting us into is actually back into a life of sanity. He's inviting us into a life where God assumes his rightful place as the foundational, ultimate reality of our life. Where we stop blaming God for all of the problems in the world, and we start to see that the brokenness is the result of human sin, not the result of some problem in God. And so, to fear God is not to be afraid of God, but it is to have the sanity to stop being afraid of God. So 1 John 4.18 says that fear has to do with punishment, but perfect love casts out fear. So actually, when we fear God rightly, we begin to restore him to this place of respect and honor and awe in our lives. In other words, God is God in our lives. And when God is God in our lives, everything else just makes up details of our lives. But God walks us through every trial, every trouble, and gives us this sense that everything is going to be okay because God is with me. We sort of have this feeling that I had when I went to a big city with my dad. So when I was in second grade, I went on a trip to Washington, D.C. with my dad. And I never at, at any point felt like I was lost or like I was in danger or that I was scared or that I didn't know what was going on. And, and looking back on that, it's because my dad had been to Washington, D.C. before. My dad knew where he was going. My dad had a plan. And I simply just followed my dad. I trusted him. I respected him. And because I had this respect for him, Washington, D.C., for me, was not this big, scary city, this, this place of ultimate reality in my heart. But my reality was simply that my dad is with me, that my dad knows what he's doing, that my dad knows where he's going. And because I had this fear, this reverence for my dad, I never felt afraid. I felt like everything is going to be okay. And, and what Solomon is calling us into is he's calling us away from finding our life in our life. And he's calling us back to this reality of finding our life in God. 
of having the sanity to turn, turn back to the one who we were made to be in relationship with. He's inviting us to stand in awe. He's inviting us to a life of worship. And so what we're going to look at in the book of Ecclesiastes, as we open back up, we're going to be in chapter 5, starting with verse 8, is we're going to see three evidences that you are living in the fear of God, that God is your ultimate reality. We're going to see kind of three different angles in, in three different spheres of life and see what this would actually look like. The first one is very relevant to the current times in which we live, and it's that we won't be shocked by injustice. It's kind of a weird passage, so hang with me on this one. Okay, starting with verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Okay, so what in the world is he saying here? All right, he's, he's saying you're walking around in your city, in the place that you live, and you see poor people being oppressed, and you see terrible acts of injustice. And this is his advice in this passage. Do not be amazed at the matter. Don't be amazed by the injustice. This word amazed, it literally means shocked, disillusioned, dumbfounded, or standing in awe. And then he explains why this would be. First of all, he explains that you would actually see these things as unjust. So he's not saying just ignore the injustice that's happening around you and the oppression of the poor. He's saying you're going to see that those things happen and you're going to label them. If you are a person who fears God, you're going to label those things as acts of injustice. It's the first thing. But the second thing that he says is you're going to be able to matter-of-factly look at the systems and structures in place, and you're going to be able to look at those with some criticism. So do you see that? He says, don't be amazed at the matter for, the word for there means because, the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. What's he saying? Of course there's going to be injustice when there is a bureaucracy in place. When there are high officials who are watched by higher ones, who are watched by higher ones, who are watched by higher ones, the guy at the top is not really going to be monitoring too much what is happening on the streets. And because in a Christian worldview, everyone in that stack is a sinner, we need to expect that before Jesus comes back, this planet, this place, this city in which we live 
is going to be filled with injustice and corruption. Okay, so he, he recognizes injustice. He kind of matter-of-factly looks at the bureaucracy, but he's not looking at it and saying, well, that's okay that it's that way. He's looking at it and saying, it's not okay, but what else would you expect when God has left the building? When we live in a place of sin, when the fear of God is not what marks people's lives. But then he's able to say something else about this government structure. This is kind of a a random verse, but he says, but this is gain for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. So what's he saying? Okay, the guy at the very top of this bureaucracy is a king. And he's saying the king is going to care somewhat about the injustices that are happening in his province. Why is he going to care? Because he profits off of it. So government structure, he's saying, has some real problems. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because bureaucracy and problems within that is better than anarchy. It's better to have a king who is power hungry and allows some injustice to happen under his watch than it is to have no governmental structure at all. Okay. Some of you are like, what exactly are you saying about what's happening in our country right now or what's happening in our world? And here's what we're not used to when we look at a passage like this. This guy is making a nuanced argument. In other words, he's able to simultaneously recognize injustice, criticize what's happening within the government, and say good things that are happening in the government all at the same time. You're never going to see this on social media. No one makes nuanced arguments. And some of you, even right now, you're sort of leaning in. You're like, what's your hot take? Give me your hot take. Say something really black and white that's going to offend a bunch of people and is going to make me feel good. And what this passage is drawing us into is to fear the Lord instead of getting into this cycle of believing only one side of the argument. Now, how does the fear of the Lord do that? Because we don't believe that the government is the ultimate arm of justice. When we look at God, we see that only He can bring true justice to the earth. And so we're able to make a nuanced argument because we don't expect planet earth to be perfect. We expect it to be corrupt. And so we can see the corruption, but we can also choose to see the good things because although God is not present here fully as he was to do good in the garden of Eden, He is still here. He has not completely left the place. And so what we believe is that the story will end with God wiping 
tears away from our face. That, that heaven will be a place where there will be no injustice, where there will no longer be any corruption, where the king is not about his own power and, and padding his own pockets, but where the king went to the cross for us and, and loved us so much that he died in our place for us. And so what we believe is that ultimate justice will be done by God and God alone. And we don't understand why he allows there to be injustice on the earth and why he doesn't just come back now, but we place our hope fully in him. And therefore for us, government officials can just be government officials. I heard a pastor in our area use this term, and I I just want to grab this term from him. And I think this is especially relevant as we move into an election year. But as Christians, this is the way that we should feel about politics. I am a political exile. In other words, King Jesus is my only king. I'm not going to put my hope in the Republican Party. I'm not going to put my hope in the Democratic Party party. I'm going to put my hope in King Jesus. And so what I expect is that no matter who is the president of the United States, that there's going to be some good things about them, that there are going to be some bad things about them, and that the only perfect and just king is Jesus. And my only hope is that he is coming back and that he is going to make everything right. And so when we fear God, we can make nuanced arguments We can analyze culture correctly because our hope is not there. It's in Jesus. Okay, so that's the first thing. We won't be shocked by injustice. The second thing when we are fearing God is that we will see that money won't make us happy. We see right through it. It's transparent to us. Ecclesiastes 5 verses 10 through 12. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So Jesus said when he walked on the earth, that it is not possible to love both God and money. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, in these couple verses, tells us why it's stupid to love money. Because when we love money and pursue money, the more we have, the less it satisfies us. When you get more wealth, you just keep wanting more wealth. It becomes an insatiable desire. And the more that you love it and the more that you pursue it, the more that you want it. Now, what Solomon's not saying here is that to have wealth is a bad thing. He's saying to love wealth. Wealth is a bad thing. To love it 
is to seek to rest your security and satisfaction in money. To love wealth is to make wealth your God. To lean on your money to do for you what only God can do for you. And this is ridiculous. He's telling us just to look at the way that the world works. He's saying, think about a billionaire who just wants another plane, wants another house. And that person is laying in bed every night and they're just thinking about money. Why are they thinking about money? Because money has become their God. And so for them to lose money is not just to lose money. It's to lose their security, their satisfaction, and their standing in life. He said, contrast that with somebody who has very little money, just working an hourly job, just getting up every day and working hard. You never heard of somebody who's just getting up every day, working hard, doing what he can to put food on the table, being obsessed with their money. Why? Because money is just money to them. It's not their God. And so when we fear God, when we stand in awe of him, when he is the one that we respect and honor, when he is our security and satisfaction, then money is just money. You know, I probably never experienced this more, just sort of at a, at a personal level in my life than when I first started dating my wife, Melissa. Some I mean, you know how this is, that money totally becomes just money when you fall in love, right? I, I just remember it's like, yeah, do I want to take her to this symphony concert and out to this really nice restaurant? Of course I do. Do I want to buy her this thing that she wants? Yes, of course I do. Did I have a lot of money? No. But money for me in my relationship with Melissa was just a tool to love and serve her. It's just money. It doesn't matter because I love this girl so much that all I want to do is spend money on her. Money's just money. I love her. And when you love God, when you stand in awe of God, when he is your security and your satisfaction, when he's your greatest treasure, money's just money. It's just money. It's not your life anymore. And so you know that you're standing in the fear of God, that you're standing in awe of him, that he's at the center of your affections. When money is nice to have, but money is not your life anymore. And so you can sleep. You can enjoy the good gifts in life. But money is not your life. And the final thing that we see in this text when we're walking in the fear of the Lord is that we're able to be thankful for God's good gifts. We see this over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've talked about this before, but it's great to talk about again. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 18 through 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. 
the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So you want the secret to satisfaction and contentment in this crazy world. It's to see that everything that you have, every breath that you take, your job, your home, your family, every possession that you own is a gift from God. We see this over and over again in this passage. It says God has given him. God has given him wealth. God has even given him the power to enjoy his wealth. And God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. The the whole transaction, everything that we have is a gift from God. And the reason that God gives us good gifts is because he is a good giver and he loves us. So here's the, here's the deal with the way that life works. God has gifts and we have needs. It's the perfect combination. We come to God with our needs and God supplies all of our needs out of his abundance. And so you don't need to work for your life. God wants to give you your life. And, and some of us were just so tired because we've been trying so hard to provide for ourselves what we need. And so we can never stop working. We just keep trying and trying and trying. And then we're never satisfied with what we have. And we think if I just had a little bit more, then I would be a little bit more happy. And the key to our joy is to receive what God has given us as a gift and to say thank you out of respect for him. And this doesn't just go for the things that we perceive as good in our lives. It goes for every single thing that happens in our lives. I was reminded of this. I was watching the movie recently, Stranger Than Fiction. And and Stranger Than Fiction is a very weird movie starring Will Ferrell. And Will Ferrell plays a guy named Harold Crick. And throughout the movie, he has a narrator. And, And basically what he finds out is that he is part of a book and that the author of the book is still alive and she's writing the story and the story is in process. And at some point throughout the movie, he finds out that the author's intent is to have him die very soon. And and there's actually this powerful scene where Harold Crick goes to the author of the book and he's having this conversation with her and he tells her that he really likes the story. So he reads the end of the story. The story is that he's going to die. And he says, I love the story. What's he saying? I believe that the story that you are writing about my life is better 
than the story that I would choose for my life. And so he basically is saying, I trust you with my life. That's what God is calling us to do. To so honor him and treasure him in our hearts that we trust him with our lot in life. The day of our birth, the day of our death, and everything in between. Now, why would we give God this kind of trust, this type of honor, this type of respect? Because God has demonstrated his love for us at the cross. He has shown us that although he is powerful and that he is just and that our sins deserve punishment, he has shown us simultaneously that he loves us and that he hates our sin. And so he punished our sin on Jesus. So would you give him your awe, your respect, your time, more than just once a week Christianity, but would you give him your heart? Would you give him your love? Would you give him your worship and your admiration? Take your eyes off of the things of this earth and give your attention to him and let everything in your life fall into its rightful place. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are worthy of our respect and our honor and our praise. I pray that you would lift our eyes above the crisis that's happening all around us, the polarization, the anger, the fear, the anxiety, and that we would be able to, in the middle of it all, sit down, worship you, and say, thank you for my life. That would be a miracle of your spirit. And that's what we're asking you to do. Would your word, this call to fear you, to stand in awe of you, take up residence in our lives in a real way this week. In Jesus' name, amen.